The Bunurang Aboriginal people, a tribe of the Kulin Nation, have for thousands of years inhabited the land southeast of the modern city of Melbourne. Their country, covering about 8,000 square kilometres, stretches from Werribee at its westernmost point to Wilson's Promontory in the southeast, and all the land in between, including the Mornington Peninsula and the land south of the Yarra River, including the Dandenong Ranges. Although this land was only sparsely populated, with between 300 and 500 Bunurang by the time of British settlement in the 1830s, they had a rich culture with an oral tradition that had managed to pass down stories of significant environmental events that had occurred in the region. The Bunurang had been in the area so long they had witnessed the formation of Port Phillip Bay 8,000 years previously caused by rising sea levels which were occurring globally due to the demise of the last glacial period. The Bunurong oral traditions tell stories of their ancestors hunting kangaroo and emu in the valley where this body of water now lies. One wonders, therefore, what significance the Bunurong gave to an incredible event that occurred in their country sometime in the late 1700s some 50 years before the devastation of their culture that British settlement was to bring. Roughly around the same time that Captain James Cook was sailing the Endeavour up the east coast of Australia, an iron bolide from space, about the size of a truck, pierced the Earth's atmosphere in Bunurong country, coming from the northeast and breaking up over a wide area between modern-day Pakenham and Pearsdale. The event would have been spectacular visually. Even if it had occurred in daytime, the larger pieces of the breakup would have appeared brighter than the sun. Had it occurred during the night, the event would have turned night into day, creating a magnificent spectacle for Bunurong witnesses. This would have been followed by incredible sonic booms and shockwaves that could have knocked people to the ground for kilometres around. Indeed, there is no doubt the local Bunurong people would have attached a large amount of significance to the event. From what is known about other cases of impact events being witnessed by Australian Aboriginal groups, they tend to be accompanied by myths which portent catastrophe. Indeed, the Aboriginal tribe who border the Bunurong to the north, the Wurundjeri, have a myth about a separate impact site at Lilydale, known in the Wurundjeri language as Bukatilibi. The story goes that Bunjil, the creator deity, was displeased by the people's behaviour and so became angry and punished them by causing a star to fall from the sky and strike the earth, resulting in an explosion that killed many people. What is more, across Australia there are many other such accounts of impact events being explained by stories of deities punishing humans by flinging fiery rocks at them in what were no doubt meteor impact events. Unfortunately, it seems that any myth surrounding the later impact event to occur in Bunurong land was lost by the almost complete devastation of Bunurong culture that was to occur upon British settlement in their lands. Bunurong alive today descend from a handful of Aboriginal women who were abducted as sex slaves by Western Port Bay sealers who invaded the area in the early 1800s. So one can only wonder how this incredible incident was viewed by the Bunurong in the late 1700s. What is clear is that it was to prove to be an extremely inauspicious occurrence 
as Bunurong culture, which had continued in a consistent manner for thousands of years, was to be laid waste in the form of British vices, murder and diseases within 100 years. One surviving account of what the Bunurong thought of the large iron meteorites in their country seems to suggest a more positive perspective of the incident. The area of the strewn field where the meteorites fell, between Pakenham and Pearsdale, while today a mixture of farmland and residential land, at the time of the impact in the late 1700s, was largely swamp. Once Melbourne was settled by entrepreneurs from Launceston in 1835, squatters immediately set about transforming the surrounding swamplands into pastureland for cattle grazing, including at what was later to be known as Cranbourne, about 40 kilometres to the southeast of Melbourne. Here, protruding from some land owned by a Mr McKay, there was a large body of iron, and years before it was identified as a meteorite, contemporary colonial reports state the local Bunurong people would, quote, dance around it, beating their serpentine tomahawks against it, and apparently much pleased with the metallic sound thus produced, end quote. Other unsubstantiated reports suggest the iron meteorite was revered as a symbol of fertility, and that the Bunurong performed fertility rituals around it. This was apparently because, though the main mass was mostly buried, at the top of it there was a large protruding spur of nickel iron that, it is claimed, was in the shape of a phallus. This, the largest of more than a dozen meteorites that would eventually be discovered, would later be referred to as the Bruce Meteorite, or Cranber No. 1. When the impact event occurred, the main mass, due to the extremely high temperatures generated, and the extreme air pressure it was subjected to on entering the Earth's atmosphere at such a high speed, broke up into a number of smaller pieces, which were strewn in more or less a straight line, stretching about 25 kilometres from modern-day Pakenham to Pearsdale. In 1853, a settler who was travelling by horseback through Mackay's land attempted to tether his horse to what he thought was a tree stump sticking out of the ground, it was then that he realised that it was a mass of iron. Later that year, a second iron mass, about half the size of the first, was also discovered about six kilometres to the northeast on the land of James Linehan in what is today the suburb of Clyde. This mass would later be referred to as the Abel meteorite, or Cranber number 2. In 1854, the phallus-shaped spur on Cranber number 1 was cut off and two horseshoes were forged out of it. These were then exhibited at the Melbourne Exhibition by a farrier named James Scott. It is not known what the Bunurong thought of this emasculating action, but the deed would certainly be viewed unfavourably by everybody concerned when it was established later that a priceless meteorite had in fact been defaced to make some horseshoes. In about 1857, a farmhand discovered a much smaller iron near the location of Cranber No. 1. Even though the iron could fit in the palm of his hand, it weighed 7 kilograms because of its extremely dense composition of iron and nickel, and was later to be known as Cranber No. 3. Not realising its significance, it was used as an andiron on a fire where it was exposed to extreme temperatures that caused it to split in two. The owner at this point threw away one half of the meteorite. It wasn't until 1860 that the iron masses were finally correctly identified as meteorites. 
This occurred when a Cranbourne councillor by the name of Alex Cameron visited Melbourne in order to petition the government to build a railway line through the Cranbourne area. In order to entice interest in his idea, he suggested that it would benefit the colony to build the railway through the Cranbourne area because of what he claimed was the huge seam of iron that existed just beneath the surface of the land there. The Melbourne town clerk at the time, Irishman Edmund Fitzgibbon, was an amateur geologist, and on hearing this bit of trivia, knew that the councillor must have been mistaken, as there was no way such a huge seam of iron could have existed on what had been swampy territory. He decided to inspect the iron for himself. He was shown both Cranbourne numbers 1 and 2, where he made trenches in order to determine their size. Both Mackay and Linehan, the owners of the land on which the meteorites rested, offered Fitzgibbon the meteorites for free if he agreed to pay for the cost to deliver them to Melbourne. He declined both offers, saying he simply wanted to generate interest in them as scientific curiosities, and said it was now the government's responsibility to arrange for their relocation. In February 1861, the famous German meteorologist George von Neumeyer, who had, a handful of years earlier, established the first weather observatory in Melbourne at Flagstaff Gardens, read a paper about the meteorites by the town clerk Fitzgibbon. Both he and a German mineralogist named August Theodore Abel, who was based in Ballarat, and some other scientists, were fascinated with the account and decided to set out to Cranbourne to visit the meteorites. The men camped the night at the site of Cranbourne No. 1 on Mackay's farm, performing some magnetic experiments and taking some samples before Mackay informed them that he had already sold it to a neighbour of his named James Bruce. For the next 50 years, this meteorite, known now as Cranbourne No. 1, would be known as the Bruce Meteorite. Von Neumeyer and his party continued on the next day and eventually located Cranbourne No. 2 on James Linehan's farm. Linehan viewed the meteorite as a nuisance and was happy to sell it on, so it was purchased by Abel, who made arrangements to have it delivered to Melbourne. For the next 50 years, this mass would be known as the Abel meteorite. Abel had it excavated and it weighed in at over one and a half metric tons, which in 1860 was the second largest meteorite in the world, only after Cranber number one, which was to weigh in at three and a half metric tons. Cramber number two generated great excitement on delivery to Melbourne, where it was exhibited before being quickly shipped to London for the international exhibition. Before having it shipped to London, Abel offered the National Museum in Melbourne a chance to purchase it from him, but they declined the offer, saying it was too expensive. Instead, he agreed to sell it to the British Museum for £300, which meant he made a profit of £250 having purchased it from Linehan and transported it to Melbourne for £50. Meanwhile, Fitzgibbon had obtained the remaining 3.5 kilograms of Cranber No. 3 from Mackay, exhibited it to the Royal Society, a Melbourne community of scientists, and wrote a paper on it. The publication of this paper gave rise to great interest in the meteorites in Europe. Even the Emperor of Austria at the time, Franz Joseph I, wrote a letter to Henry Barclay, the governor of Victoria at the time, asking for more information. Barclay had a sample of number one sent to the emperor through the German-Austrian botanist Ferdinand von Müller, who was the director of the Royal Botanic Gardens. 
and he also sent a larger fist-sized piece of number one to the KK Hof Museums in Vienna. When it became clear just how important the meteorites were, many in the Royal Society decided it was of utmost importance that the main masses should be kept in the colony. One member was Irishman Frederick McCoy, who was also director of the National Museum in Melbourne. Knowing that Abel had already sent his mass to London, McCoy wrote to Mr. Bruce as to whether he would be interested in donating Cranbourne No. 1 to his museum. Bruce, being a proud citizen of the British Empire first and an Antipodean second, informed McCoy that his request would be impossible as he was determined to donate it to the British Museum. However, he told McCoy that he would be willing to have the meteorite cut in two, giving one half to the museum in Melbourne and one to the museum in London. He wrote his letter to McCoy in early January 1862, but it seems that McCoy did not reply immediately to this letter, and Bruce, taking this to mean a rejection of his proposal, on January 31st gave Cranber number one to von Mueller in order for him to present it to the British Museum. Cramber No. 1 was then moved to the University of Melbourne Quadrangle, where it waited to be transported to London. When the Royal Society discovered that Bruce had arranged to send it to the British Museum, debate ensued in public throughout 1862, and many petitioned to have Cramber No. 1 retained in Melbourne. Many members became outraged and publicly criticised Bruce's actions in letters that were published in the Argus newspaper. One in particular, a Dr. McAdam, criticised Bruce for his lack of, quote, scientific attainments, end quote. Bruce, however, wrote his own letter in December of 1862, in which he bitterly defended himself. In it, he explained how he informed McCoy that time was of the utmost importance in replying to his agreement to split the meteorite in two. But as McCoy hadn't replied in almost a month, he was well within his right to send the meteorite abroad. He also included a stinging rebuke of McAdam with the following words, quote, As for Dr. McAdam's insidious sneer with respect to my scientific attainments, they may or may not be empirical. At all events, I have not thrust myself before the public. If the great doctor's last lecture is a fair specimen of his scientific attainments, I scarcely think he is free from the taint. But this is beside the question. I have yet to learn that, unless I am possessed of great scientific attainments, I cannot deal with any property I may have possessing a scientific interest as I see fit, without consulting even the Royal Society. Let the doctor commence to weed nearer home. There is plenty of room for the knife. I have lived long enough to know that they are not the men of greatest scientific attainments who are continually thrusting themselves before the public. I have spent many a pleasant day in the British Museum and gained some information. Why should I be prevented from making some return? By what right did the Royal Society attempt to deal with my property against my wish? Would it not be more creditable to them to throw all selfishness aside, take a more cosmopolitan view of the matter, and lend their aid? instead of throwing obstacles in the way." End quote. Just when it seemed as if the impasse could not be overcome, Henry Barclay came to the rescue by writing to the British Museum and arranging for them to return Cranber No. 2 in exchange for Cranber No. 1. This agreement seemed to appease all parties involved, 
and also saved the larger meteorite from being desecrated by being split into two. Cranber number one was sent to London in 1865. Cranber number two was returned to Melbourne and put on display in the National Museum. It can still be seen in the Melbourne Museum in Carlton to this day. In 1876, what came to be known as Cranber number nine was found in a railway cutting roughly three kilometres east of the Beaconsfield Railway Station when they were building the train line to Gippsland. It weighed 75 kilograms and had apparently been exposed above the ground for many years, unburied unlike the two main masses. It apparently fell into the possession of a German mineral dealer who destroyed it by greedily cutting it up into many pieces and selling each piece for a profit. In 1886, Cranber number 10 was discovered on the property of a Mr. Padley, about 7 kilometres southeast of the old Langwarren railway station, by an employee who was ploughing an orchard. Padley saw the rock as a nuisance and simply moved it out of his way, not realising its significance. It was only when a government geologist by the name of Murray visited the locality that it was identified as a meteorite. It was quite a large fragment, weighing in at 914 kilograms. Murray encouraged Padley to donate it to the Melbourne Technological Museum, and today it is located in the Melbourne Museum, Carlton. In 1903, the Piersdale Iron, or what became known as Cramber No. 11, was found. It was quite large, weighing in at 760 kilograms. This piece was to prove to be the most westerly fragment discovered as of February 2020. 1923 was a busy year for Cranbourne meteorites, as another four were found this year, all nearby the largest fragment, Cranbourne No. 1. Cranbourne No. 4 weighed in at almost 1,300 kilograms, No. 5, 356 kilograms, No. 7, 153 kilograms, and No. 8, 24 kilograms. All four fragments were found in the same paddock by farmers ploughing the land. Five years later, in 1928, Cranbourne No. 6 was discovered further to the northeast at Pakenham and was a smaller rock at just 40 kilograms. It was discovered during construction work involved in the widening of the Prince's Highway and, like many of the others, was buried at a shallow depth. This piece is the most easterly of the 13 pieces discovered as of February 2020. Cranbourne No. 12, a small fragment of some 23 kilograms, was only identified in 1982. It had actually been found in 1927, but was not identified scientifically until the later date. The last piece to be found, Cranbourne number 13, was identified as recently as 2008. A market gardener in Clyde, not far from the location of the Abel fragment, Cranbourne number 2, dug up a rock that had been annoying him for years. He had intended to dispose of the 85 kilogram piece at the local tip until a friend suspected there was something special about it and urged him to keep it. Coincidentally, the man's son was studying about the Cranbourne meteorites at Clyde Primary School and informed his teacher that his father was in possession of an unusual heavy rock. When the assistant principal of the school, Maury Richardson, made inquiries with the parent, the latter agreed to take it to the school so that the children could study it. The school arranged for a sample to be taken and sent to the Melbourne Museum, and it was confirmed then that the fragment was indeed of meteoric origin. It should be noted that while 13 fragments of this meteorite have been discovered, 
there are more out there awaiting discovery. As mentioned previously, all of the pieces of the Cranbourne meteorite were discovered in locations more or less in a straight line stretching 25 kilometers from Pakenham to Pearsdale. In total, the mass discovered thus far comes to 8,500 kilograms. If one looks at the map of the strewn field included in the melbournemarvels.com blog post about this event, it can clearly be seen that the fragments are clustered together at four different main areas along the 25km flight path. These areas are Pakenham, Clyde, Devon Meadows and Pearsdale. Within these clusters, larger bodies, because of their greater mass, travel further along the flight path. This can clearly be seen from the cluster at Devon Meadows, where Cranber number 1, the heaviest object, was further along the flight path to the southwest than where the smaller bodies of Cranber numbers 4, 5, 7 and 8. The only exception to this theory in this location was Cranber number 3, which was located further to the southwest than the others, but at just 7.5 kilograms, it is possible that this iron was picked up by a human and carried to the area it was found in in the late 1850s. At both Pakenham and Pearsdale, the theory plays out as well, but with only two and three irons found thus far at these locations respectively, it is possible that searching in these locations for further irons may prove fruitful. But perhaps the best chances of success in attempting to find more of the fragments of the Cranbourne meteorite would be at Clyde, where until 2008, the only fragment to have been discovered was the massive 1.5-ton Abel meteorite, Cranber number 2. The theory predicts that upon separating from the main body, Cranber number 2 would have had smaller fragments detached from it before it finally came to rest, and this theory was proven correct when Cranber number 13 was found in 2008, close by, just to the northeast. However, there are almost certainly more of these smaller fragments out there in the Clyde area. Unfortunately, since 2008, much of this area has been rezoned as a residential area and a housing estate has been built on what was until about three years ago farmland. Therefore, an extensive search using metal detectors would be much harder to carry out today. In 2001, the Pakenham Gazette interviewed Glenda Tate and Jean Herman, who are granddaughters of Susan Linehan, who was a nine-year-old child of James Linehan, on whose property Cranber number two had been taken from in 1860. Jean Herman told the newspaper that her grandmother remembered as a child the impact the transportation of the meteorite had on local members of the Bunurong Aboriginal tribe. Quote, Grandma said the meteor was worshipped by the Aborigines who came to the property. She said it was so special to them that they cried when they saw it being taken away. End quote. This account of the importance attached to Cranbourne number no. 2 by the Bunurong people, as well as the earlier one related by Mr. McKay in regards to Cranbourne number no. 1, leads one to suspect that the impact event was the source of some profundity for the tribe. It is a terrible shame that what that significance entailed was lost. Indeed, the Cranbourne meteorite was to prove to be a particularly inauspicious occurrence for the Bunurong people. That this prized possession of the Bunurong was transported out of their lands to the capital city of the empire that had so decimated their culture is perhaps symbolic of the British invasion of Bunurong land. One could view the Cranbourne meteorite lying in the Natural History Museum in London as the Bunurong's Elgin marbles. 
Perhaps one day, the British government will return this culturally significant artifact to the Bonarang people as a gesture of goodwill. Thank you for listening to this episode of Melbourne Marvels on the Cranbourne Meteorite. My name is Eamon, the creator of Melbourne Marvels. You can help me out by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your Android podcasting app. You can also help support me on Patreon from as little as $1 US an episode. If you can't afford that, you can support me by giving me a 5-star rating on iTunes. This helps the discoverability of the show. On Twitter and Instagram, my handle is Melbin, M-E-L-B-I-N, Marvels. And my website is Melbin, M-E-L-B-I-N, Marvels.com. Here I have included a transcription of this episode, as well as photographs of the meteorites and the references I used in my research. <laughs>